Very good. Is this on? Are we on? Good. Now, young people. Young is under 18. There is a little quiz going around that might interest you this morning. It has something to do with this chocolate. Um, I have some self-interest here. Three of my own kids are in here, see, so they'll go, Dad, do we have to listen to you all morning? So, so yeah, this, this might incentivize a little bit. But, um, I feel slightly apprehensive this morning. I heard about the top Trumps incident last week, those of you that were here. And I feel that's a bit of a hard act to follow Adam's lead. Is Adam here or not? No? No? Oh, well. Um, so I thought we should actually try and follow Adam's lead a little bit this week. Um, and I thought we'd do a top trump on Graham Hipwell, actually. So, Graham, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> Woo! Graham, welcome. Thank you, Andrew. I've been waiting for this. Now, moment. I just thought we'd, Graham's been apprehensive all week, actually, about this. We had a little <laughs> chat last Sunday. But, um, just like a bit of an audience participation here, first of all, just to see. I, what I've done is I've thought about the characteristics I thought we should just look, about, look at with Graham. I need, I need a bit of a, a vote from you in terms of the number of points we should award. So, propheticness. <laughs> ten, eight, seven, ten, eight, ten. One down from Jesus, at least one down from Jesus, I think. Perhaps two down. I, I thought two down from Jesus. Well, he's got a bit of a way to go yet, but he's not... If, not bad. Not bad, not bad. That's pretty good, that's pretty good. Um, what about dress sense? Hmm? Three. Come on, be a bit more generous, Eileen. You're supposed to be an encourager. Five. Can we, can we go to five, Eileen? Six. Well... Oh, okay, five. Five will do, five will do. Beardiness. <laughs> it's not as beardy as he was, actually, a while ago, but eight? What do you think? Seven? Six? It's a bit... You can't really see it from a distance, can't I? Th- I thought six, probably. Eunuchness. <laughs> Connecting it with last week. You've got to connect with last week's preacher a little bit, see, so... Zero, exactly. <laughs> he has three children, so... Um, and lastly, agedness. What do you think? 50. 50? Does he really look 50? No. I think we should sing happy birthday. Yeah. One, two... It, it's, it's a couple of days away, but on this great auspicious occasion. Does he Bless look... you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you'll get your own back one day. Oh, I've got away five years. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Graham. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> Okie dokie, right, that's the quiz. What did you say? Did you want a quiz, Eileen? I've got a spare one here. Did you, would that keep your interest? <laughs> there we go. Right, okay. Acts 9, Saul's conversion. Who knows the story of Saul's conversion? Yeah, a number of us. It's a fantastic story. It's a really, I mean, I've been reading it and rereading it this week, and 
It's just a great story. And we're going to read it together. Actually, rather than reading it, I thought I'd just show you a little video. Might be a little bit more engaging. Um, this is called the Visual Bible. It's a, basically a verse-by-verse dramatization of the NIV. You have to ex- forgive the slightly cheesy American accent at one point. Um, but we're just going to watch this together for a couple of minutes, uh, but just by way of reading the story together again. So let's hope this works. It's a hi. It's a very powerful story, I think, um, and we're going to dig into it a little bit as we just look this morning over the next few minutes. Um, three themes stand out to me, and the first one clearly is this dramatic turnaround that happens at the centre of it. Saul turns around dramatically. You'll see the significance of this ox in a moment. I also just want to say there's usually a personal story at the heart of whatever God is doing. Whatever God's doing in the nations, our choices and actions at the heart of that make a difference. And Saul's choices and actions here made a difference. We sometimes use the phrase, one can make a difference. One person's choices make a big difference in God's economy. Who was Saul, first of all? Passage here doesn't say too much about who Saul was. But the same story is summarized twice later in Acts. Saul himself, Paul by then, actually tells the story twice of his own conversion. Um, in Acts 22, we don't need to turn there, but in Acts 22, Paul says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus, brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the major kind of rabbis around at the time and thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you, the Jews he was speaking to, are today. He was a learned, scholarly, you know, attentive Jew. And then in, verse, in chapter 26, the story is told again. And Paul says, I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. This is a serious Jew. He wasn't just a casual sort of Sunday church-going Jew or something, or a nominal Jew. He was a serious, full-on Jew, um, a Pharisee, a religious guy. Um, a couple of comments. The fact the story is repeated three times in the book ought to get our ears pricking up a little bit. Mm, that's interesting. The stories don't often get retold three times, so we'll, we'll come back to that. And in case any of you are confused, Saul becomes Paul at some point in this story. He's the same guy, it's just a different name. Um, and what we're going to see later is that God uses these, this, this background that Saul has, this thoroughly Jewish, educated, stubborn and committed, he's stubborn like that ox, see, and notorious. Paul became, Saul became notorious. I mean, Ananias had heard of his reputation. His reputation preceded him. And, um, God uses these factors and turns them right around. God you, turns them to good through this story. Saul has witnessed and approved Stephen's death. We looked at that a few weeks ago. He's now set on eradicating the fledgling church. And he's off to Damascus. Damascus is quite a long way. It's about 140 miles north of Jerusalem. That's quite a long way in the ancient world uh, to walk. And uh, Damascus apparently was quite a major hub of activity. It was a sort of trade hub. So if if this Christian faith got established... In Damascus, there was a serious risk it was going to spread. And so Paul, Saul, is out to snuff it out before it gets too far. He has this dramatic encounter on the, uh, on the road. And we, t- we talk of conversion here, this kind of conversion. This, it, a word I've used here is turnaround. It wasn't just a conversion. So for some of us, perhaps conversion is, is like well, we, we, we choose to kind of loosely align ourselves with a certain religion. That's, that is conversion in some people's eyes. That's not the sort of conversion we read of here. Conversion here was a dramatic 
repentance, a change of mind, a turnaround. It's a, it's a wholehearted, full life kind of commitment that Saul has here. We're not entirely sure what happens here. I mean, it's, he has this, he, it's, un, it's undoubtedly clear that he has some kind of vision, some kind of prophetic encounter, if you will, some kind of mountaintop experience. It's a bit unclear what happened, but something clearly happened. He was profoundly changed, and more than that, it was witnessed by the others. The others don't seem to have heard what was said, but they know that something was going on. It, it wasn't just Saul had this little private experience in a corner. It was a dramatic public experience. And Saul, through these two or three days of this story, does a U-turn, essentially, and, and goes for God, which is a fantastic story, I think, of conversion, the sort of conversions we should be looking for and praying for and seeking for. Um, there's, been, there's an interesting question in here about whether Saul had, in fact, sorry, God had been preparing Saul for some time. Uh, one of the other versions of this story later in, the, in Acts talk, uses the phrase, God says to Saul, why do you kick against the goads? An ox goad is a kind of sharp, proddy thing that you use to get, and oxes are pretty stubborn animals, aren't they? You know, an ox goad is a thing you use to prod the ox and make it move, which is what this guy's doing here. And there's some suggestion that perhaps actually God had been prodding Saul for some time. Yeah. Um, perhaps, the, perhaps at, the, at Stephen's martyrdom, Saul's conscience was pricked. Perhaps Saul, as an educated, scholarly guy, knew somehow that Jesus had fulfilled a lot of the Old Testament prophetic and was just kind of wondering. Who knows? But there's a, there's a serious um, thought that actually this, what we see here is God bringing Saul to a tipping point in that experience. There's a bit of a journey. We like, we like talking about the journey to faith these days, don't we? And there's a, there may be a journey here for Saul, but th- there was a tipping point. There was a dramatic encounter with the Lord Jesus where he suddenly sees it. Suddenly it all makes sense, and he has this moment of revelation. Does God still encounter people like this today? How many, how many of you have got a testimony like this of a dramatic moment of encounter with the Lord? Some of us. How many of you came to faith in a more gradual kind of way? Okay, so perhaps more coming to faith in a more gradual way. But what we see here in this book um, is, is a dramatic one. There are still stories. There are some fantastic stories. We sometimes hear stories of, you know, some... We get, you, you get these guys to come... They come to guest events and they speak of their dramatic conversion from crime or something. God does still do it. God does some amazing things today. And Paul, Saul here was the kind of the arch enemy of the church. He wasn't just a guy that was doing a few things wrong. He was, you know, the anti-church guy kind of thing. And he was just fully turned around. I want to just going to read you a story. Ruth's going to read you a story now of a similar story. This is just a few years ago. Um, as we think today of, of our main threats against the church, we might think of humanist movement or the politically correct movement or the radical Islamic movement. There's a number of movements we might think of that that we see as threat. But this is a story um, from the Muslim world. And Ruth's just going to read you this story. Sitting comfortably. Okay, I will begin. Okay, the the Sheikh's dream. Sheikh Hanif's dream was very curious indeed, both overwhelming and hopeful. It was not at all like the frightening and troubling nightmares that he had sometimes known. No, this was very different. And there was little time to reflect on this dream. It required immediate action. Because, according to the dream, something important would happen today. Something that required him to be in place before first light. Hanif was a seasoned Muslim leader. 
Like his father before him, he had studied the Quran for years. One of Hanif's superiors had observed Hanif's people skills, which had resulted in him being recruited to organize Muslim communities and launch new mosques. For eight years, he had done this with excellence. For his community, Hanif was the voice and character of Islam, a decent man who represented what it meant to be a good Muslim. But there was one thing that no one else could ever know. Hanif's commitment to Islam was genuine, but there was a deep void in his soul that Islam had never really satisfied. He longed for certainty regarding his status with God. He struggled to find answers or reasons for the violence inside his Islamic world. He grieved for the lack of compassion for suffering people. And he recognised that his religion did not allow him or the people he led to make choices for themselves, nor did it give them satisfying answers for the huge struggles of life. But this night, Hanif had awakened in the dark hours with a new hope burning inside. Perhaps he was about to learn the answers to these questions. It had been like a dream, like it had been a dream like no other dream. In it, Hanif had encountered a very handsome and graceful man. The man addressed him by name, simply saying that he wanted Hanif to serve him. But then came a warning. Hanif must learn to listen to him, the man said. Surprised and shaken, Hanif asked, who are you? I am Issa al-Masai, the Quranic term for Jesus the Messiah, the man answered. And if you obey me, you will succeed in what you have longed for in life. What should I do? Hanif asked. Jesus showed him a tree standing alone atop a hill, a very busy road running beneath its branches. Hanif recognized the place for it was well known to him and not too far from his home. Jesus then showed him the face of a man and said, go now and wait under the tree by the road. Look for this man, for he is my servant. You will recognize him when you see him. Find him for he will show you the true answers to all your questions about God. How many years had he prayed daily, asking God 17 times a day to show him the right way? But until this dream was given to him, he had feared that he would die without ever experiencing the right way of true peace and certainty. Hanif made his way to the appointed tree and sat down at its base and waited. He waited and he watched. He sat, he scanned, every search, searching every passing face. From time to time, a thrill would shoot up his spine. That's him! It's... No, no, it's not him. Time passed, and people passed, and still Hanif waited. In the late afternoon, several miles away, a man named Wafi was wondering, wondering if he would finally have a chance to get some sleep when he returned home that next morning. It had already been a full day, and there was still another hour of walking to get to the scheduled place selected for this week's all-night prayer meeting. Oh, thankfully, the sunset winds, so common in this part of Africa, refreshed him and his companions. Today had been a good day, travelling on foot with the two promising young leaders whom he was currently mentoring visiting new Christ followers in their homes. There was no better way of making disciples than this. Wafi had developed an ability to find the people whom God had prepared and positioned to become bridges for the bringing the good news of Jesus into a new town. 
for those who had privilege of spending time with him, Wafi could always be counted on to model and mentor the disciplines of prayer, the processes for finding those bridges into the community, or patience of overcoming trials. For Wafi, sharing, teaching, walking, praying, and enduring together were how Jesus discipled the twelve, and it was how, the only way he knew how to do the same. Curiously, Wafi had recently had a strange dream in which God had said to him, I will give you a shake. Wafi understood the dream. Not that kind of shake. I'll give you a real shake. Not that kind of shake. <laughs> Wafi understood the dream. He understood it. To mean that God would have a plan, had a plan to use him to disciple a shake who would perhaps become a bridge for taking the gospel to other Muslim leaders. But Wafi would have to wait to find out. That dream, however, was not in his mind as he and his two friends walked along the darkening road. Meanwhile, Sheikh Hanif, still at his appointed place, was beginning to despair. He had not imagined that his dream-imparted task would take more than 12 hours of scanning innumerable faces until the last light was growing dim in the western sky, matching his own fading hope. Then... In near darkness, there came a few more people on the now almost empty road. He could barely discern three figures as the distance closed between them. And then, the one in the middle. Yes! It was the face for which he had waited. It took a few minutes for the excited shake to convince Woffy that he meant him no harm, in spite of the intensity of his greeting. My friend, understand! It is Al... It is Asa... Al Masai himself that requires you to answer my questions tonight. This seemed to Wafi like a heavy burden. My, to be met unexpectedly by a stranger and told, you must answer my questions tonight. But the man was unwilling to meet at a later date. He had waited all day, actually for many years, for answers to life and death questions. And he was not inclined to wait any longer. Very good. It's a great story, isn't it? There's a book full of those stories if you want to borrow it or buy one. It's a fantastic uh, provocation to see what God's doing in the Muslim world. Um, and I just felt it was a very apt story for this morning. It's, it's an up-to-date story. It's only a few years old. God is doing Saul-like things today in some pretty interesting parts of the world. God is still into dramatic turnarounds, whether it's here with our friends and neighbours or whether it's in other, other situations. So the first theme is about Saul's dramatic turnaround and... I want to look now, secondly, briefly at the strategic significance of this. It sounds a bit grand, but as I said earlier, at the, at the heart of everything that God is doing in the nations, there is a personal story. We've looked at the personal story briefly. What is God doing in this story? Um, uh, can someone tell me what the word kairos means? Time? God's time? Pardon? A moment? Anymore? A significant moment. We're getting there. It's good. A revelation. The word kairos is, someone said it's God's time. It's, it's, it, we, when we talk about time in, in English, we sometimes say, it's time. You know, it's not just time. It's time. It's a significant time. It's time to act or time to do something. That's what the kairos thing is to do with. And this story in Acts 9 tells us of one such kairos moment in the story of the early church. One commentary says of this, and just, just listen to this, this is quite a strong statement, this is the most important event in human history, 
apart from the life, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the most important event in human history, apart from Jesus. That's what this this commentator is saying. The conversion to Christianity of Saul of Tarsus. Paul goes on to write much of the New Testament and becomes the key player in extending the mission to the Gentiles. Without Paul, we probably wouldn't be here. Is that significant? Paul, this is a really significant story um, in, in, in Acts here. And the context of the story, we've, you know, we've been looking at Acts the last several weeks now. The, Acts 1 to 6 tell us about the church being born at Pentecost and establishing a rhythm of life and um, growing leadership. Acts 7 to 8, we did those the last couple of weeks. God's preparing his people for change. There's persecution, there's dispersion. In this uh, story, this chapter, we read of God preparing leadership. And in the next few chapters, which we'll come to in the next few weeks, we see God changing the theology of the church to say, yes, the Gentiles can come in too. And then in Acts 13, God sends them out on the first of many missionary journeys. So God is preparing his church here for change. And in this particular story, he's preparing leadership, Paul's leadership. It's a turning point. That's why the story is retold and retold and retold. It's a significant moment for the early church. And Scripture talks of leadership as being that which un- understands the significance of the times. And so as a, one of the questions I want to say is, what's God doing us? Now, what is God up to today? You know, this is, this is what happened. This is what God was doing then. In that moment, it was a significant moment in the Gentile mission. What is God doing today? And I want to suggest just three things briefly to say, this picture it's, is a, it's a picture perhaps of a Kairos moment. You know when you're surfing or bodyboarding, you've just got to, you've got to catch the moment, haven't you? If you faff around and dither, it's just all kind of peters out and you don't really catch. You've got to catch the moment of the wave. That's what, that's what this picture is about. What waves is God bringing today? What do we need to catch as his church? And I want to suggest three things that have a connection with this passage. I'm sure there's lots of other stuff God's doing, but these are just three things that seem to me connecting with the passage. Firstly, God is doing something in the Muslim world. That's why I read that story quite deliberately. I think there's something God is doing in the Muslim world today. I had a conversation. Most of us know Len Barlotti. Wave a hand if you know Len. If you don't know Len, talk to me afterwards. Um, um, Len said this last year in a conversation some of us were having with him. He said, more Muslims have become followers of Jesus in the last 30 years than in the previous 1,400 years. So in the last 30 years, more Muslims have come to faith than in the whole previous 1,400 years. Len said, we're on the edge of a breakthrough of the gospel into a new sphere that is of the order of magnitude of the gospel breaking out of the Jewish world into the Gentile world. This story we've just read is about the gospel breaking out from the Jewish world to the Gentile world. Len's saying to us, there's something God's doing in the nations that is as significant at the moment. And we just need to be aware of that. I'm excited this morning just to hear Andrea's story and, and others I know in this church and connected with us that have got a heart for the Muslim world. So God's doing something, and we need to catch that wave. Otherwise, the moment will pass, and we'll have missed the moment of God. That's the first thing God's doing at the moment I want to comment on. Secondly, he's working here with us, isn't he? He's working in our nation and neighborhood. He continues to call the church to mission. Um, That's one thing that God's doing. I think we're catching that wave. We're trying to catch that wave. Uh, We're working hard at catching that wave. It's a bit of a change of emphasis for some of us that came into the church in a different season. Um, But just as for the church we sing in Acts, they had to catch a wave and they had to move from their comfortable situation in Jerusalem to catch the wave of God and go out into the Gentile mission. 
I believe God's doing something like that with us. It's about mission in our nation, around us. And the third thing God is doing is to do with being a people of the Spirit. Um, This story is absolutely laden with God encounters, isn't it? I mean, Saul's dramatic encounter, first of all. That's That's a story in its own right, really. Ananias' vision... Would you, if you had one vision on your own, in your stable or whatever it was, um, of the Lord, and the Lord said, go to whoever, you know, some person that you thought was just the arch enemy of the church and was likely to lock you up in prison and kill you, would you go on the basis of one vision and talk to that person? I don't know whether I would. I'd probably think about it for quite a long time. But Ananias was a man of faith, and he knew he'd heard the Lord. I wonder if we have that, sense, that, that, that acuteness of hearing the Lord today. And I, I believe there's something that God is doing in calling us. And we've, we sense this as a, as a regional leadership. And as, as there's something that God is doing in calling us afresh to a fresh, passionate spirituality, a fresh commitment to prayer, a fresh commitment to the prophetic. And this is something we're going to be talking about in the autumn more. But there's something God's doing in this story about which, which I believe overflows to us here. These are Kairos things God is doing for us at the moment. God, God is working in the nations. God is working to draw his church into mission. God is speaking to us about prayer and passionate spirituality. How will we respond? Will we catch that wave that God is bringing? All of which just brings me to, really to the last thing I want to say, the last aspect of this story. It's quite a challenging story, isn't it? You know, whether you think about Ananias or whether you think about Paul's conversion or whether you think about the, the church in Damascus that one minute were trying to hide from this guy that had come to beat them up and the next minute they embrace him as a new convert. That's quite a profound story in itself. Um, there's, I, I just, as I was looking at this earlier in the week, I felt there's a, there's a challenge to obedience for us in this story. It's a bit like bungee jumping, which I have to say I've never done and never want to do, just in case anyone's got any ideas. But you see the bold action of others, and you find yourself, I find myself asking, can I make the leap too? The answer for me is no, I'm not going to do that. But can I respond? Will I respond to what the example of others? And we see the example of others in this passage. And I would, as I just make these last few comments, I want to ask you to open your ears to Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, is there something you want to speak to me about today? You know, is there something you want to goad me about today? Maybe God's been after you for something and you've been stubborn. Is there something God wants to goad you about and bring you to a point of repentance today? Um, so I'm just going to list uh, seven things. So just ask you to open your ears to Holy Spirit as we do this. The first thing, the first challenge I see in this text is, is we commented on it already, it's Saul's dramatic, 100% whole life repentance and turnaround. His commitment to the gospel, despite great personal risk, you know, we see him getting beaten up pretty soon, um, and loss of face. He was a well-known senior Jew, and he suddenly does a complete U-turn. Um, that's a big turnaround. Are we, is our experience of repentance, repentance that strong? Are we living with things that we need to work, walk away from more strongly? So I'm challenged by Saul's dramatic whole life repentance. It's a bit of a development of that, really, but I'm challenged by Saul's, I've called it full discipleship, but Saul fully becomes a disciple. He doesn't just go, okay, God, I'll serve you. He has this personal encounter. 
he surrenders. He repents. He gets filled with the Spirit. He gets baptized. He joins the church. It's, a, it's, it's the whole package. Some people call that the normal Christian birth. It's that whole package of coming to faith. It's not just, oh, I'll have that bit and that bit and that bit, but I don't like those bits. Saul has the whole package. That's a commitment to us. Some of us, perhaps, that, have, that are coming into church, God, God's best for you is full discipleship, that whole journey of coming to faith. I'm challenged by Ananias' bold obedience. I mentioned this a few minutes ago. But Ananias, I, I don't know, would I have done what Ananias did? I, ha- I have my doubts, if I'm frank. It was a very bold thing to do, very high-risk thing to do, um, based on one vision from the Lord. And I just think that's a significant challenge for us. Will I, will I follow? Will I take the leap like Ananias did when God speaks? I'm challenged, fourthly, by the church's willingness to embrace their former enemy. You know, they just took him on board. How are we as a community, if people come into our community that are um, perhaps strongly anti-Christian or, or, or have come from different backgrounds, how do we embrace those people into our church community? That's a challenge to community, if you will. I'm challenged by the church's willingness to change um, their vision focused priorities. This is really about the whole, the whole thing that God's doing here. This change from being a Jewish centered church to a church that was on a Gentile mission. That's a significant change of theology and practice and vision and priorities. Um, when I read that quote from Len earlier, one of the th- other things he said was it's going to be messy and chaotic, it's going to challenge our Western theological tra- traditions. We're going to see a new expression of church in the Muslim world. There's something God wants to do in the Muslim world that is going to make us have to reevaluate a whole load of things. Um, and are we willing to change or are we, are we stuck in our comfortable ways? That's a challenge. Uh, sixthly, I'm challenged by Saul's commitment to developing his relationship with God. Somewhere in this story, I'm not going to get into it now, but somewhere in this story, there's a time in the desert where Saul goes out to the desert, has, a, has an encounter with the Lord, and you read about it in uh, 2 Corinthians 12. Paul then, Paul by then, talks of this. He, t- it's like, he tells a kind of I have a friend kind of story because he doesn't want to speak about himself because you know, it's such a profound experience he's had of the Lord in the desert. It's changed his theology. It's developed his relationship with God. Saul was willing to take time for that building of relationship with God before he got off into the mission. And uh, I wonder how many of us are just too keen to get going without making sure that our relationship with the Lord is as it should be. And lastly, um, challenged by Saul's submission to team, he has this massive personal encounter we just talked about, and probably three years of some kind of God download in the desert, and yet he was willing to submit his life call and message to the church, to the leadership, and to say, guys, this is what I think God's doing to you. Do you concur? You read this as we read on in the story and read other bits of the New Testament. And Saul's example shines, really, in a a day when we we have an individualistic, personal, subjective approach to faith. Saul's example shines as a man who had this the most dramatic encounter you could possibly imagine, and yet he submitted himself to, to team for the, to validate it. These are seven challenges that I, as I read the passage this week, I thought these are seven challenges for me. I'm sure some of these land for you. What is the Holy Spirit goading you about today? 
What's the Holy Spirit on your case about? What does he want of you in terms of bold action?